Hello friends, welcome to another uh, lesson in our series on Survey of Theology. Survey of Theology. This is going to be lesson number seven. And uh, in today's lesson, we're going to cover uh, two more chapters in major Bible themes. Uh, in this section, we're going to talk about God the Son, His coming with His saints, with His saints. And so this is going to talk about the second coming, which will occur at the end of the tribulation. So we've been talking about um, God the Son. We talked about his deity, his eternality, his incarnation, his coming into the world, taking upon himself humanity. Again, in theology, the doctrine of the hypostatic union and his ministry on the earth, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We talked about his ascension into heaven, his ministry in heaven, uh, his high priestly ministry, uh, in which he's also serving as an advocate for us, and then his ministry on the earth of giving gifts uh, to believers on the earth, and his indwelling ministry. And in the last session, we talked about his coming uh, for his saints, and we looked at a few key passages on that. And so today we're going to talk about his coming with his saints. And so in last session, I drew a distinction between uh, the rapture of the church and the second coming. So the second coming of Christ, uh, what's, what's he coming to do? Well, he's coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, the subject of the kingdom is really mentioned uh, throughout the Old Testament. This is a very, very common teaching. When we get to Revelation chapter 20, the only thing Revelation chapter 20 really gives us uh, has to do with the duration of the kingdom. And the, and the term uh, kilioi, or thousand, is mentioned six times in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. It's mentioned six times. And some people say, oh, well, the millennium's only taught in one place in the Bible. You'll hear people say that, by the way. They'll say, the millennium's only taught in one place in the Bible, and there's not enough information to really draw a conclusion. <laughs> it's so irritating uh, to hear that sort of stuff. First of all, uh, the virgin birth is only mentioned twice. You know, are we going to exclude that? And Revelation 20 doesn't give us, what it gives us, again, has to do with the duration of the kingdom, not the existence of the kingdom. So the kingdom, when we go back, we'll look at uh, 2 Samuel 7.16, where God made a promise to David that his kingdom and his throne will be established forever. Uh, God says to David in 2 Samuel uh, 7.16, he says, Your house and your kingdom. And when you think of a kingdom, think of an earthly kingdom. Think of a throne. Think of uh, officials in the kingdom, people who are helping the king to rule. Uh, think of economics. Think of laws. Think of real estate. Think of real property that constitutes the boundaries of the kingdom. And so that's how David would have understood this. And we always must interpret the Bible uh, from the time and the culture within which it was written. And so the question then arises, how would David have understood uh, this reference to his kingdom 
and his throne. David would have understood it literally, plainly, in just a straightforward reading. So he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, and notice the time frame here, forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, ultimately, when we get to the second coming of Christ, who is a a biological descendant of David, in his humanity, he's a biological descendant of David, and he is a forever person. (laughs) So once he starts the kingdom, uh, it goes forever. It goes on forever. Now, he starts the kingdom, uh, and, and it lasts for a thousand years, But there's a point in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says that he hands the kingdom over to the Father. And so at that point, it goes into the eternal state. And once the kingdom starts, it never stops. So we might call the millennial kingdom really just a kickoff party for eternity. But here there's this promise that God gave to David that his kingdom shall endure before him forever and your throne shall be established forever. In Psalm 89... Uh, verses 3 and 4, God says, I have made a covenant, berith, a contract with David. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever. Sorry for my computer screen jumping around there. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And then he says over in verses 34 to 37, my covenant I will not violate. God's not going to break his word. God doesn't uh, go back on his promises. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. Nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne from the sun before me. Now, other passages speak of the coming of the kingdom. Daniel 2.44 and uh, in Daniel, he had, t- he had prophesied other kingdoms which were going to come. Earthly kingdoms, don't, don't miss that, other earthly kingdoms. He talks about the Babylonian kingdom. He talks about the Medo-Persian kingdom. He talks about the Greek kingdom. He talks about the Roman kingdom. And in that flow of talking about earthly kingdoms, Uh, He talks about a future kingdom, and he says in Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and we should understand this as an earthly kingdom, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So the other kingdoms were destroyed. They did come to an end. But the kingdom of Christ, the earthly kingdom of Christ in the future, Once it starts, it will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people, and it will crush and put uh, an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it says, I kept looking, Daniel has a vision here, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Hmm. Who's that? Well, that's Jesus. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him, that is to Jesus, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations, again, think earthly, that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom 
is one which will not be destroyed. So again, very straightforward. And what will be the characteristics of this kingdom? It will be marked by righteousness. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given, uh, possibly here implying the hypostatic union, because deity cannot be born. Uh, His humanity was born, and so a child will be born to us. There's his humanity. A son will be given to us. There's his deity. But notice it says, and the government. Again, think of human, earthly government. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty, Mighty God, Okay, eternal father, and the phrase of olam there uh, could also be rendered father of eternity. Father of eternity. He's called the prince of peace. But notice verse 7, there will be no increase, no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of who? David and over his kingdom. And what kind of kingdom did David have? It was earthly, it was physical, it was literal, so on. Uh, And so there will be no end uh, to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, once it starts, from then on forevermore. So again, very straightforward. And we live in a day where righteousness and justice seems to be in short supply all over the world, but here in America seems to be uh, especially the case. Uh, But not the kingdom of Christ. It will be marked by perfect righteousness and perfect justice. Notice Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David... Don't miss that. I will raise it for David, a righteous branch. And the word branch here in the NASB is capitalized because it's talking about Messiah. And I will raise up for David, a righteous branch, and he will reign as what? As king. And he will act wisely. And he will do justice and righteousness in the land. Again, real estate. Think earth, earthly kingdom. His days in Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Uh, And of course, you know, this prophesied, promised ruler, this descendant of David, we get to know his name by the time we get to Luke 1, 31 to 33. And behold, you, the Virgin Mary, will conceive in your womb, parthenogenesis, virgin conception, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Um, and so she's going to give birth to the humanity of Christ, the humanity. And so Mary is Christotokos. She is the bearer of the humanity uh, of Christ. And so, and, and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now we've got a name to put to the Messiah. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David. And he, that's Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever. And his kingdom, that is his earthly kingdom, will have no end. So we see this pattern here. This is very, very clearly uh, continues on. And I've mentioned these before. Guess what? I'm going to mention them again because learning is about repetition. It's about going over and over the material. And it's about uh, taking uh, just the plain reading of the text. And when one thinks about Mary here and she receives this word, how would she have understood this? How would she have understood who her son was going to be? How would she have understood the promise that he was going to sit upon the throne of his father David, and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. How would she have understood the use of the term kingdom? Well, based on 2 Samuel 7, 16, Psalm 89, uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah uh, 23, she would have understood it as a literal kingdom, an earthly kingdom. It's exactly how she would have understood it, and it's exactly how we should understand it as well. Now, Jesus offered the kingdom. He offered the kingdom uh, to Israel at his first coming, but they rejected it. And you can read about that in uh, in Matthew chapter uh, twelve. Uh, and uh, and so there's a rejection of the kingdom. So the kingdom, the the kingdom is still promised. It still is there. The promise stands. It's just been postponed until a future time. And so we read about the second coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19, where he descends, and Matthew 25, 31 speaks of the second coming. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then... Don't miss it. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is not a heavenly throne. He is in heaven right now. But when he comes at his second coming, when he returns to the earth, and the angels are going to come with him, and the saints are going to come with him, then he will establish his glorious throne. Revelation 19 reads, And I saw heaven opened. That's where Jesus is. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now he's going to come, and he's going to put down all rebellion, uh, both satanic, demonic, and human. He's going to put down all rebellion, and he must put down rebellion, because uh, currently the earth is under the temporary and limited rule of Satan. And I've mentioned this before, but guess what? We're going we're gonna to talk about it again. We're going to hit it again in the future. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Isaiah 14, 12 describes him as one who has, who has weakened the nations. Revelation 12, 9 tells us that he has deceived the nations. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 describes him as the god of this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 is the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this is a temporary arrangement. 
God permits this in his sovereignty. He permits this for a time, and he keeps Satan on a leash. Uh, Satan's not allowed to just do whatever. God's still in sovereign control. But Satan is the ruler of this world. And so when Christ returns, he has to put down that rebellion. And it is a rebellion. And, uh, and so that is going to be at the Battle of Armageddon. So he's going to come back, and he is in righteousness, going to judge and wage war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems, and he has, uh, he has a name written on him which no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And, uh, and this is going to speak of his, uh, of his coming and waging war, because the blood is going to spill. Uh, so heavily. In fact, there's going to be so much bloodshed at the Battle of Armageddon that he's going to call for the birds of the heaven, uh, of the heavens, uh, to come and to feast upon the flesh of kings and commanders and horses. It says, and his name is called the Word of God. Hmm, Word of God. John 1 1, John 1 14, John 1 18, other passages. And the armies which are in heaven, this is both the angelic armies as well as the human armies. We are going to be coming back with him. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So if you've never ridden a horse before, you'll get your training in heaven. You'll get your clothing, you'll get your, you'll get your uh, riding equipment, and you'll get your horse. And this also says that there will be animals in heaven. Uh, and so... We are going to come back riding with him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he, with it he may strike down the nations. And this is his ability to simply speak and to subdue. Just as he spoke things into existence as the creator God of the universe, uh, he has the ability to simply speak and life ends. So from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is a picture of, of capital punishment so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them, that is, rule the earthly nations, with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Uh, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, I believe, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, I don't have it in the notes, but I think that that is a parallel reference to this verse here. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to continue on here for just a moment. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great." And so this is going to be there at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, after all of that is uh, put down, uh, John writes, he says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. So we're going to have these other thrones. In fact, over in Matthew 19, 28, uh, Jesus promised that the apostles would sit upon thrones and rule. And Jesus said to them, because here he's talking about uh, future rewards, uh, Peter said, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? So Peter was thinking about the future rewards 
uh, for following Christ. Jesus says in John 19, 28, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that is when he renews the earth, when the curse is lifted, at the time during the millennial kingdom, because it's going to be very ideal situations. Death will still be present. It won't be completely removed, but the, but, the, but the curse will be lifted to such a degree that it will almost appear perfect. Uh, in fact, people will live uh, throughout the entire duration of the millennial kingdom. You'll have people that will live uh, for a thousand years. But he says, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man, notice from the time of Matthew 19, this is future, when the Son of Man will sit, future tense, when the future man, future Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. What throne is that? That's the throne of David, kingdom, uh, earthly kingdom. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, those again are physical thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when you get back to Revelation 20, and it says, and then I saw thrones. So there's going to be those who are going to have uh, subordinate rules. Uh, They're going to be subordinate to uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but they are going to be sitting upon thrones and ruling and judging. Then I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And then he says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are martyrs during the time of the tribulation who had been beheaded because of their testimony and because of Jesus, uh, because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, that's resurrection, and reigned with Christ. Reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. A thousand years. Now, the rest of the dead, he says, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. But again, we should understand this, again, to be a future earthly literal kingdom. Again, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. I, we, we're, we're praying for the kingdom to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the second coming of Christ... Uh, is to establish his kingdom on earth. And this is distinguished from the rapture, which I covered in the last session, where he takes Christians to heaven. So we have to keep these things distinct in our thinking. And I'll bring these things up again. Don't worry. This will be covered in future lessons as well, because repetition is how we learn. And if there's anything that you learn about me, and for those of you that have been studying with me for uh, several years, you know I am about repetition. And I will cover the same material over and over and over because it drives the point. So these next three points are taken directly from major Bible themes, pages 82 to 83. First, a period of preparation will follow the rapture uh, in which ten nations will be formed into a confederacy uh, in a revival of the ancient Roman Empire. Now, Some think that this will just be within Europe, but 
uh, research and some of the writings of Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum and uh, Dr. Andy Woods uh, both argue that this could be uh, and will likely be 10 regions of the world, not just 10, uh, 10 kingdoms within Europe, as has commonly been argued, but it could actually be 10 regions of the world. And I think there's more merit to that line of reasoning. So out of this will emerge a dictator uh, who will control uh, first three, then all ten of the nations. Point number two, a period of peace will be brought about by the dictator in the Mediterranean area, beginning with a covenant with Israel planned for seven years. In Daniel 9.27, we have a reference to the Antichrist. And Daniel 9.27 is a very, very important verse. And it says, And he, that's the Antichrist, will make a covenant, berit, that's a contract. He will make a contract with the many. Who's the many? That's unbelieving Israel in the land. That is unbelieving Israel in the land. So he will make a covenant with the many for one week. That is a seven-year time period. It's not seven days. It is a seven-year time period. And what he's going to promise them is peace. Because even right now, the world stage is set to where Israel, there's, there's, uh, there's constant hostility and tension towards Israel uh, right now. <laughs> And so when the rapture of the church occurs, I think America is going to implode. I don't think that we're around, or if we are, I don't think we're very significant uh, in the final uh, end-time events. Uh, But Israel is going to be vulnerable. Well, Antichrist is going to come off as the hero. He's going to come in and he's going to sign this contract with the many that is unbelieving Israel for seven years. But then it says here, but in the middle of the week, that is halfway through the seven-year tribulation, he will, put a sa- he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. To put a stop to something implies that it's going on, doesn't it? So that would also argue that there will be a temple built uh, in Jerusalem that will be functional. Now, there's four temples that are mentioned in Scripture. There's the temple that Solomon built. There's the temple that uh, was built by uh, Ezra and Nehemiah during that time period. Uh, there, is the, uh, there is the tribulation temple, and then there is the future millennial temple. And so you'll, you'll see those. But here, uh, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And then it says, and on the wing of abominations will will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's um, he's going. It's going to begin with this seven year uh, uh, contract with Israel. And number three, there will be a time of persecution for Israel, and really for all believers. All who come to faith in Christ. By the way, at the rapture of the church, all believers are removed from the planet. All believers are caught up. This means that for a brief period of time, could be seconds or minutes, we don't know, but for a short minute, there will be only unbelievers on the earth. So at the rapture, all believers are caught up, leaving only 
unbelievers on the earth. Now, there's going to be a worldwide ministry that occurs uh, through Jewish evangelists, 144,000 of them. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to come to faith in Christ. Uh, and so there will be a persecution in Israel uh, in, in, for both Israel and for all believers in Christ. And this will be brought about when the dictator breaks his covenant after the first three and one half years. So let's talk about vital facts related to the second coming of Christ. And these points are taken directly from Major Bible Themes, pages 83 and 84. So I've lifted it right out and put it into my notes here for convenience. One, the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth. He will return to the earth, Zechariah 14, 4. In that day, that is at the time of his coming, his feet, he's going to touch the earth, physically touch it. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So he is coming. And unlike the rapture where we meet the Lord in the air and then go with him to heaven, here he's going to come down, he's going to touch the earth. And as Zechariah 14.4 tells us this, and this will be personal. Again, Matthew 25.31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he is personally coming. And he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 24:30 and then the sun uh, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man that's Jesus they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with great pow with power and great glory Acts 1:11 Jesus this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven and this, uh, this happens according to, all, uh, according to all biblical passages. It will be a glorious event, which will be seen by the entire world. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Now, the questions arise, well, how's that going to happen? Well, maybe his uh, coming uh, will be slow enough that as the earth turns, everyone will see uh, his, his coming. It could also be by use of technology, because it'll be uh, broadcast all over the planet. So every eye will see him. Now, according to uh, the revelation given by Christ himself in Matthew 24, uh, his glorious appearing will be like lightning shining from east to west. In other words, it's going to be uh, on big display. And when lightning shines, it lights up the whole sky. It lights up the whole sky. And his, in his second coming to the earth, Christ is accompanied by saints and angels in dramatic procession. So this is going to be quite a dramatic uh, event, his coming. Point number four, at his coming, Christ will first judge the armies of the world that, uh, that are deployed in battle against him. As he sets up his kingdom... He will regather Israel and will judge them uh, relative to their worthiness to enter the millennial kingdom. And then in a similar way, he will gather the Gentiles or the nations and will judge them. And you can see that in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46.
So these are some of the events um, uh, that are related uh, to the second coming of Christ. All right, so let's move on into our next session here, next uh, set of notes, and we're going to talk about God the Holy Spirit. So in, in our discussion about theology proper, we looked at the Trinity, we looked at God the Father, we looked at God the Son, and now we're going to take some time to talk about God the Holy Spirit. So to recap some of my notes from previously, the Bible reveals that God exists as Trinity or Triunity. That is, there is one God who exists as three persons who are co-equal, that is, they share the same attributes. They are co-infinite, they are not bound by time or space, and they are co-eternal, that is, they have eternally existed. The Bible does not teach tritheism, that is, three absolutely separate gods, nor does it teach modalism, that there is only one person who manifests himself in three forms, such as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, the three persons of the Godhead, remember that they are one in essence. They are one in essence, which means that they share the same attributes, characteristics. And again, though there are difficulties in understanding the Trinity, the biblical evidence is clear that God exists as three distinct persons. We have God the Father that is mentioned. We have God the Son, who is the Word of God, whom Thomas declared to be my Lord and my God, in which Hebrews 1.8 tells us, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever. And we also have God the Holy Spirit, which in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, he says, You have not lied to men, but to God. So again, very straightforward. So, uh, with regard to the Holy Spirit, we'll look at the importance of his personality. God the Holy Spirit is a person, therefore he has personality. Uh, Chafer says, quote, In teaching the fundamental truths as relating to the Holy Spirit, special emphasis should be made of the fact of his personality. This is because the Spirit does not now speak from himself or of himself. Rather, he speaks whatever he hears. John 16, 13, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So this assumes that there was a special coming of the Holy Spirit, which for us, uh, we understand, occurred in Acts chapter 2. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears that is from the Father and the Son, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Not only that, but then he also says uh, that he will glorify Christ. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is we might almost say that he's the silent partner uh, within the Trinity. Uh, and he does not glorify himself. He glorifies Christ. So this brings up an issue because I sometimes see people who in, who have Christian ministries who, who, who glorify the Spirit. Now, listen, as God, he's worthy of all worship. We're not going to diminish that. But what, what is the Spirit doing? Uh, in John 16, 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So uh, it is said that when he comes into the world, he will glorify Christ, end quote. 
So let's talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit, and these points are taken directly from Major Bible Themes, pages 88 and 89. Point number one, the Spirit is said to do that which is possible only for a person to do. In John 16, 8, and he, when he comes, and notice he's not saying it. Uh, Jesus says, when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit. And listen, as God, he's omnipresent. But listen, just as Jesus came into the world at a point in time and took upon himself humanity and began a special time of ministry, there's going to be a time where the Holy Spirit came into the world, Acts 2, to take on a special ministry. So when Jesus says when he comes, it's not as though he's not omnipresent equally and fully everywhere all the time. It's that when he comes in special ministry, and he, when he comes, he's going to do three things. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is the world of unbelievers. Concerning sin, and by the way, the word sin here is singular. It's hamartia. But the noun here is singular, so he's not focusing on all sins. He's not convicting the unbeliever of his, uh, of his smoking or his drinking. Certainly those, are, those may be issues or, or lust or hatred or greed or whatever the sin happens to be, gluttony. I mean, pick one. He's coming in and he's focusing on one sin concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So he reproves the world. He teaches John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again, notice future tense, He will teach you all things. And so, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. He's a teacher. And, and, and so he teaches, and he reveals, he illumines the mind to understand biblical truth. And sometimes he does this directly. Sometimes he does it through gifted teachers whom Jesus has equipped uh, with a gift in the church. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit works through a gifted teacher uh, to reveal uh, something. And not only does the Holy Spirit will he teach you, but he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, to bring something to remembrance assumes that it was there to begin with. So as you learn the Word of God, one of the ministries of the Spirit is he will recall Scripture to your mind. And as you're being filled with, as you're filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and growing in the Spirit, as that becomes part of your normal Christian life, the Word of God, the Spirit's going to bring that to your remembrance and you will be able to apply it to your marriage, to your children, to your parents, to your work, to your politics, to your finances, whatever aspect of life you're talking about. The more you take in the Word of God, the Spirit will bring that to your remembrance to help you. The Spirit also speaks, that is, He communicates, uh, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons of God, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So as a, as a, as a person, He speaks. Again, these are, these are characteristics that only a person can do. A power can't do it. The Jehovah's Witnesses are messed up. The Holy Spirit is not a power, uh, and, uh, and He is a person. Not only that, but he intercedes for us, Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. That's true. I often don't know how to pray. I'm at a loss. I pray for my governmental leaders, uh, for the righteous. I pray that they succeed and have strength of character and are surrounded by good and godly people. For the wicked, I pray that they will turn to the Lord, but if they don't, I pray that God will frustrate them. 
and uh, limit their uh, damaging uh, uh, actions so as to mitigate against uh, harm within the country. But I don't know how to pray. I mean, there's times I'm at a loss. Uh, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Uh, And by the way, he, he doesn't intercede through us. Uh, but he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so the Spirit, I, I imagine sometimes when I'm praying, he catches my prayer and reassembles it and then sends it up in proper form. The Spirit also leads. Again, this is a, a, something that a person does. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The Spirit appoints men to specific service in the body of Christ. Uh, The Spirit is himself subject to appointment. The Spirit ministers, that is, he regenerates, he seals, he baptizes, and he fills. The second aspect here is he is affected as a person by other beings. The Father sends him into the world, John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and he he will give you another helper, another uh, parakletos. And the word another here translates the Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. Uh, There's two words in the Greek that are translated another. One is the Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. And then there's heteros, which means another of a different kind. (laughs) And so this is another of the same kind of the Father and the Son. That is uh, God, uh, another helper. Another helper, a parakletos. Some translators, uh, translations say uh, a comforter. But he is a helper. He's here to help us. And so he, he is sent by the Father into the world. And the Son also sends him. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, talking to the disciples in the upper room on the night before his betrayal and crucifixion. And so he, before he, he says, look, I'm going to ascend to heaven. But he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit. And uh, men may vex the Spirit. They may grieve him. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I can't grieve a power force but I can grieve a person. He may be quenched, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He may be blasphemed. Again, you can blaspheme a person, but not a, not a power. They may lie to him. People can lie to the Holy Spirit. They may disrespect him, Hebrews 10.29. And they may speak against him, Matthew 12.32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, There are Bible terms related to the Spirit which imply, again, his personality. He's called another comforter in John 14, 16. He's called that in John 1, 2. He himself, uh, excuse me, Oh, which indicates that he is as much a person as Christ. So let me read that point again. He is called another comforter, which indicates that he is as much a person as Christ himself. Uh, B, he is called a spirit in the uh, same personal sense that God is called a spirit. Remember that God is spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. 
The pronouns used of the Spirit imply His personality. In the Greek language, the word Spirit is a neuter noun, which would naturally call for a neuter pronoun. And in a few instances, the, the, the neuter pronoun is used. But often the masculine form of the pronoun is used, thus emphasizing the fact of the personality of the Holy Spirit. Um, so like in, uh, in, in, uh, in John chapter 14, uh, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, uh, he calls him him, that he abides with you and will be in you. And so we have these references here to the uh, Holy Spirit using the uh, masculine personal pronoun there. God the Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Father and the Son. The following points are taken directly from major Bible themes, pages 89 and 90. He is called God. And this fact is comparing him with, um, uh, with other passages uh, for example, in Isaiah 6, 8, 9, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And then, <clears throat> and then over in Acts uh, 28, 25, and 26, And when they, did, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken. Uh, one parting word. And notice what he says here. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through. So this is the Holy Spirit speaking through uh, Isaiah the prophet. And you find a number of examples of that. Of course, in Acts 5, 3, and 4, again, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. He also has the attributes of God, uh, point number two. And the Holy Spirit performs the works of God. He performs the works of God. Point number three, the Holy Spirit is presented in Scripture as a personal object of faith. As a personal object of faith. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As an object of faith, he is also one to be obeyed. The believer in Christ, walking in fellowship with the Spirit, experiences his power, his guidance, his instruction, and his sufficiency. Uh, and this confirms experientially the great doctrines concerning the personality of the Spirit, which are revealed in Scripture. So cumulatively, when you look at the biblical passages related to the Spirit, it's very clear that he is a person, that he is God, and that he has specific uh, roles uh, within the human race and within the church. So that will close out this lesson, and next time when we pick up, we will uh, begin our section on God the Holy Spirit, his advent. And again, as I'm working through this, remember that this is a survey of theology. I'm just hitting these high points and not really digging too deeply into the material. There's a lot of scripture references that are provided uh, in the notes, parenthetically, and I would encourage you to chase down those scripture references for yourself and to see what is communicated there. So hopefully this lesson has been helpful to you. I thank you very much, and I wish you a good day.